attention and intention are the mechanics of manifestation. Can I start by saying I have no idea what that means? <laughs> All right, you don't, you don't need to do a countdown. Um, hello, everyone, and welcome to series two of 80% Mental, probably the best sports psychology podcast in the world. My name is Dr. Pete Olushaga, and I'm delighted, thrilled, somewhat amazed that we've actually made it to a second series. Uh, Hugh Gilmore is here too. Hugh, how's it going? What have you been up to? Uh, I've been up to not a lot because of lockdown, but you know, Pete, you're very excited and I'm not. I think I've got a bone to pick with you. What, what have I done? I think you know rightly what you've done. Uh, I've seen the new website you've made. I, I've uh, noted that we now have a number of nice sections like the quick guide for lectures to look up and see what episodes you can stick in. But I also see what you've called me in the about me section as well. Um, I'm not best pleased, Pete. It's it's highly offensive and derogatory. Well, I mean, I mean that's what you get for you know not responding to requests for information. You get me making stuff up. So you know you've learned your lesson, really. Yeah, well, look, it's going to have to change. This this can't go on. Um, it better not be up here by the end of uh, season two. I hope you take it down and see see the wrong in your way and repent. Well, what I'll probably do is just leave it there for a while so our listeners can go and have a look. Uh, and you can check out the rest of the website while, while you're there as well. Anyway, I am excited. I am thrilled uh, that we've made it as far as season two. Um, if series one, I've called it season. We're not American. I meant series. Series one was all about the basics. What is sports psychology? Anxiety, confidence, goal setting, imagery. But for series two, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. And we're going to tackle some potentially more difficult questions and think a little bit more about the applications of sports psychology. So if you're one of our regular listeners, can we call them fans yet, Hugh, do you think? Yeah, let's call them fans. Fans. Um, I definitely think there's some people out there who are fans. Awesome. Okay. Well, if you're a fan of the show, then you'll know how it works. We start off by asking a specific question about sport and performance psychology. And then Hugh and I, usually with some expert help, will try to answer that question. Now, we answered the question of what sports psychology actually is in our very first episode. So check that one out if you want to hear us being terrible at podcasting because it was the first thing we'd ever recorded. Um, but one thing we didn't really address in that episode was some of the misconceptions, maybe, about what sports psychology actually is uh, and what we do. Now, if you're a psychologist or a psychology student, you'll know that whenever you tell anyone that that's what you do, you're invariably met with, so... Can you read my mind then? I usually just say, yes, I can and watch people squirm. But thinking about that reminded me of a book that I read in my uh, second year as an undergrad called How to Think Straight About Psychology. And it was all about common thinking traps that we fall into, uh, the types of knowledge that we like versus the types of knowledge that actually make sense, uh, and so on and so on. So to open up series two, the question we're going to ask in this episode is how to think straight about psychology. But we're going to focus on something that I think is particularly important in these unprecedented times, and that's the idea of toxic positivity. Now, we're going to get into what that might be uh, in a little while, but we've got a couple of guests to help us out today. So it is my absolute pleasure to introduce, first of all, Dr. Darren Britton. 
Darren's a lecturer in sports psychology at Solent and a chartered sport and exercise psychologist. He's worked with athletes across a range of different sports and abilities for uh, over eight years. And his research interests include stress, emotion regulation, and brief interventions in applied sports psychology. Darren, welcome to 80% Mental. Hi, Pete. Hi, Hugh. Hashtag grateful. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag positive vibes only. Straight in there with the hashtags. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Uh, I know. That is that was a strong start. <laughs> it's all about positivity, right? We'll talk about positivity, yeah? Um. Darren, you're in sort of a somewhat similar position to me in that you're lecturing during lockdown. How's how's that going? It's going great. Is it? Um, yeah, it's it, it, uh, it, it's challenging. It is it is challenging, as you will know, Pete. Um, it's definitely uh, uh, stretching my resources, not just as a, a lecturer, but also as a practitioner as well. Hmm. Um, you know, as a sport performance psychologist, I like to think I've got a, a few you know, skills and tricks in my armory to help me cope with stress, but you know, it's, it's very, very challenging. Yeah, well, if you could share them, please do. Cause I'm, I'm struggling. Um, <laughs> we're, we're also joined, uh, by Matt Cunliffe. Matt is a registered sport and exercise psychologist and mindset coach is the owner of sports psychology, Kent, and the creator of the core performance mindset training program. Matt's also worked at the EIS with British Wheelchair Basketball, England Touch Rugby, the PGA, the British Association of Snow Sport Instructors, and has supported nearly 600 athletes in their mindset development. Quite an impressive CV there, Matt. Um, Matt, welcome to 80% Mental. Thanks, Pete. Um, it's good to see you again. It's been a little bit of time since we've we've got together and, and chatted. But yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. It is, yeah. We were just uh, talking before the show. Full disclosure, Matt is, yeah. Well, I was going to say Matt's one of my ex-students. Um, essentially, I didn't actually teach Matt. Uh, I was just finishing my PhD up while Matt was uh, finishing his MSc up at Sheffield Hallam. So we we crossed paths there. Um, so yeah, it's good to see you again, Matt. Welcome to the welcome to the podcast. So in thinking about this episode, uh, I was I was reminded of a couple of things. First thing was a segment. I don't know if anybody else saw this. Uh, I think it was during the London Olympics. So again, it's going back away. But there was a BBC segment uh, on sports psychology, and it referred to sports psychology as the dark art of psychology, which just kind of perpetuates this idea that there's something mystical about it all, something magical about it all, right? And I think while the coverage for the topic was really good to see, uh, it just didn't really help to dispel some of those myths. The second thing I thought about was a paper from 2000 and 2018, uh, I think, by Richard Bailey, uh, along with Dan Madigan, uh, Ed Cope, and Adam Nichols on neuromyths in um, uh, neuromyths and pseudoscience. And in that study, they found that about 40% of the coaches involved agreed with statements that promoted these neuromyths, right? So for example, the myth that everyone's favorite neuromyth learning styles, the myth that individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning style, so auditory, visual, kinesthetic, was believed by almost two-thirds of the coaches in the study. So essentially, we've got coaches who are you know, working with athletes who are investing in and believing in these things that we know don't have any evidence behind them we know that they're not really true so you know the conclusions was that a large 
percentage of coaches were basing aspects of their coaching practice on these neuro myths and on these pseudoscientific ideas. So in this episode, you know, on how to think straight about psychology, I just wondered if anybody had any thoughts on, well, either of those two things, really, in terms of maybe the difficulties that we think, uh, sorry, in terms of the difficulties that we might have in getting people to to think straight about it. Hugh, you, you kind of wanted to say something there. You want to jump in? You know, it's funny. I want to hear what uh, Matt and Darren have to say about learning styles because some of our audience won't be familiar with this. But I was first introduced to learning styles, uh, I believe, in some random, you know, self-help type book that I was reading about psychology. But I was actually shocked when I was doing a PGC that learning styles were taken into account in teacher education. So this is not just a myth that affects sports psychology. It actually affects something much more serious than athletic performance. It's educational performance of children. Um, So, you know, this is one of these pervasive things. So I think I'm just going to kick off with like, you know, darn, you know, learning styles. What are your thoughts on this? Why is it, why does it not exist? And, you know, any, any comments you have there? Yeah. I have a personal experience with learning styles where uh, having finished my master's degree in psychology, um, I spent a little bit of time working in uh, the urban education sector. Whilst I was training as a sports psychologist, I worked at a sixth form college. And uh, part of that was doing a little sort of um, teacher training course over a few weeks. And I had to do an assignment on learning styles and knowing full well (laughs) that there's no scientific evidence to support it. I had to produce an assignment about how, uh, I, I can use learning styles to support the students that I was working with. And I said, but, but what if, what if I can, like, I have references. Uh, um, I'd like to show you. Um, can I, can I include these in the assignment and, you know, critically analyze, you know, the basis for these learning styles? No, no, no. You have to, got, got to fully commit to those learning styles wow. and tell us how you're going to use them in your teaching. But they don't exist. There is no, um, scientific evidence to support learning styles theory there's a lot of anecdotal evidence from people who say yeah if i deliver my learning for all these different means it appeals to people who have different preferences of learning in different ways but that's just good teaching you know (laughs) having a, a wide and varied amount of activities that you deliver your teaching through um and yes the evidence is there that people have preferences for learning through different sensory modalities, whether it be visual, auditory, kinesthetic, um, not nasal, not nasal. People don't seem to have a preference for <laughs> learning through their nasal sense, but we won't get into that. Um, yes, people have preferences for these, but it doesn't actually really equate to any real learning. People will say, yes, I have a preference for watching things versus listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. but there's actually no evidence that it actually equates to any um, different uh, educational outcomes you know that's probably one of the darkest things i've heard uh is that you actually had to agree with them and you couldn't criticize them in this uh piece of academic work you had to agree with it and you couldn't form your own opinion or critically appraise it like that's a failed system uh Ma, what are your thoughts here on um uh learning styles and your experiences with them <laughs> i find learning styles um and I've, unlike Darren, I've never had to support learning styles, although I have found in a number of coaching education courses that I've been on that learning styles are still um, still portrayed and still taught. 
even now that they've been debunked countless times in the literature. I find it's it's fascinating. Um, but you know, like like Darren said, try try learning to swim um, by reading a book, or like try learning to be a leader by by reading a book. So I think mm-hmm. I think absolutely you're right here in the sense that we we kind of need to get away from this. And okay, people do have preferences for certain things based upon their their uh, cognitive ability or their personality type, for example. But but in reality fitting teaching to a learning style is almost impossible especially depending on the the kind of thing that you're trying to trying to coach an athlete on it it, it seems to be kind of madness yeah i mean that's uh it's just ridiculous altogether i think the the first time uh, the learning styles critique twigged with me was possibly when richard bailey maybe made a quote uh on the internet who who was the author of the paper that Pete introduced at the start there and I think it was something along the lines of if you had um, 100 people who exist in the world and they all had different learning styles and some of them acquired you know 5% of them or maybe or 10% of them are maybe visual learners and then they acquired blindness that would mean that they couldn't actually learn then after the point of being blinded so like when people lose their senses and they're all of that learning style, does that mean they can't learn anything new? You know, so I thought that for me, for a simpleton like me, that was the best way of explaining it. Darren, what are your thoughts there? It highlights the potentially damaging aspect of this theory when it gets applied. The idea of kind of putting a student or an athlete into a box of, oh, you completed this learning styles assessment, you can only learn through a visual medium. Um, we're putting them into a box that potentially then limits their learning and makes them sit back and say, well, I can't do that because I'm a visual learner. I can't do that because I'm a kinesthetic learner. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, learning styles is, is kind of one of the many neuro myths that's, that's covered, uh, in that paper and that we, that we sort of know about it, it is one that's really prevalent, as you say, in educational settings as well. I've come across it as a, as a lecturer, um, as well as in sport, which is, you know, somewhat worrying. Um, but it's, a, it's one of many. Uh, and I don't want to sort of get bogged down too much in that particular uh, neuro myth. It's a big question to ask early on in the podcast, and I'm hoping that we're going to get there maybe a little bit later on. But, you know, w- what do you think about how we how we dispel some of those things? Like, how do we get people to be critical thinkers? How do we get people to, um, you know, think straight about psychology? Any thoughts there, Matt? What do, what do you think? I think we need to be better as psychologists at, at getting out there and talking to the general public. I find that sometimes psychology can be quite inaccessible to your average person. So I think there's a real need for us as psychologists to make our language um, really clear and make our understanding and make, our, make, make what we're trying to say really, really clear. Darren, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, I would I would counter that point from Matt because um, with the idea that, yes, some of these theories are really, really appealing because they come across as simplistic, but yeah, there's also quite a lot of guff out there, which is um, adopted by a lot of people, which sounds very complicated. And that's part of the appeal of it. Like, uh, I don't know if we're going to start talking about it now, but like neuro-linguistic programming oh, God. sounds the most... <laughs> 
the most it's the most sciencey sounding thing with the most over explained mechanisms of how the brain works and neurology works which are completely outdated um but yet people listen to it and go this sounds really complicated it's obviously backed by science yeah this sound this this they, this person knows what they're talking about they're using the word neuro and something about yeah. like sensory integration so this this is good i believe this guy so, so we've got a, we've got a problem. Well, we've got two problems. One is Hugh's about to explode at the mere mention of neurolinguistic programming, and I'm sure that he's, Hugh's got plenty to say about that. But the second is that you know, Matt, you've talked about this idea of people like things to be really simple, and Darren, you've said you know that there's an appeal there when things sound really complex and scientific. What do we do? Like, <laughs> we're kind of stuck there, aren't we? Like, how do how do we dispel those myths when people are really find those two completely different types of information so appealing like how do we get to the how do we get to the good stuff Hugh what do you think well you know it's funny that you mentioned uh, neuro-linguistic programming there Darren uh, because Matt's actually a neuro-linguistic practitioner um, so uh, you know Pete, I, I didn't didn't know if you wanted to drop this bombshell on the show, but like, uh, yes, neuro-linguistic programming, there's no evidence base for it. Uh, it's very poor, and there's a great meta-analysis by Wojcikowski 2010 uh, called 35 Years of, I don't know, something about neuro-linguistic programming. <laughs> so you can check that out. But uh, Matt, you know, I'll hand it over to you. You're the person who's just recently done a course in it. Right, so yeah, I need to clear up. I am not a neurolinguistic practitioner and I would never espouse to be an NLP person. <laughs> um, but what I did was I learned, or I decided that it, they know something, right? There's something that they're doing that's getting people sort of stuck in with the work that they're, they're doing, right? So they're popular. And I wanted to know why. So I went and had a little look at it. And, you know, Darren's right. There's no evidence base to, to, to any of this. And to be honest with you, the course I was on was pretty pretty shocking but there was a couple of things on there that I must admit there was some stuff in there that I thought was interesting um but I think perhaps some of the the less interesting stuff was interesting was was for me was around the presuppositions of NLP they talk about behind every behavior there being a positive intention or you know the map is not the territory um and I'm not sure what that means they talk about the mind and body being one system. Okay, I understand that. Um, and then there's no such thing as failure, only feedback, which is a really nice, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. But it's kind of clearly a kind of mix of, of different stuff. But yeah, I mean, for me, NLP is not, not the most um, exciting or useful tool or technique. And to be honest, I sat in that session, um, it was 50 quid. I paid, paid 50 quid for it. I thought, oh, I'd get to see what, what's going on and and to be honest it it wasn't worth the 50 quid i paid for it um but i think there's stuff that we can take from it but i think specifically the marketing and the way in which that they they engage with people we can take from it there's certainly stuff in there that i'm not a fan of like this idea of meta mirrors um and 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 this whole idea of meta uh, meta stuff i'm not a huge fan of um, and, and they've kind of like bastardized the number of quite good psychology techniques, made them too simplistic or too complicated in, in equal measure somehow. Um, and I'm not sure, not sure how good or useful that is ever going to be. 
Yeah, you know, I think this is to me uh, the same as somebody saying they're a strength and conditioning coach and they're basically telling somebody to go and lift weights and exposing them to that, but there's no actual process behind how they apply it. Um, and, and then similarly, you know, go and lift some weights and go and do some running and then you'll get fit. But it doesn't make you an S&C coach to have that knowledge. That's just something you can say to somebody and they can do it and get some results. And actually, the issue is if they, you do give them the, the wrong advice to a person who that might be contraindicated to, then you could end up in a very dark place where you cause harm. I think also the other thing is there's a very dubious um, backstory between the, the people who created NLP, which is interesting, and uh, you should look it up to find out what the criminal records are. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that there for liability purposes. I'm kind of curious here, you know, there's there's something about this, about simple messages that are impactful and simple messages that the common person can latch on to, the deep understanding that the sports psychologist has, and then also uh, how do we get the sports psychologist to communicate in a simple way that that person can understand it. So I want to give you a bit of a challenge here. Um, I've picked up some phrases uh, straight off the internet. And uh, I want to see what your opinions are of are of, of the, are of them as sports psychologists. So um, do, do the I get first to play one, as well? I don't know, Pete. I'm still annoyed at you, if I'm honest. Okay. So uh, okay, you can play. You can play for the first one, um, <laughs> right? So um, the first uh, one that I'm going to throw at you is if somebody says as a sports psych to you. The hardest mile is from your couch to your front door. What are your What are you guys' thoughts on that? Is that bullshit or is that uh, useful? What if you live in a really big house? <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, you know, if your front door is a mile away from your couch, you know, you need to move your couch. Yeah. What if you live in a studio flat? Yeah. yeah. Or, or if your house is so big that you, you know, your couch is a mile away from your front door, then you've got problems. You, you don't have the same problems as everyone else. I don't want to hear from you. I don't know, Pete. I, I, I want that client. I want that client. They've, they've got a lot of money. So they're, they're the ones that are going to pay me some good wages. So I want that. I definitely want that client. Okay. So, so is there any use in that type of statement? For me, absolutely not. I think that, that statement's a really weird one. Um, I think there's there's some sense in it, and I like to think about like what's the underlying psychological message to some of these statements. I guess for me, the underlying psychological message for this one is like actually getting up and going and doing something, going to the gym is is probably the hardest bit. Which again, I disagree with because it's not. Um, having been the the guy recently that's that's tried to go out running halfway through my five k, I'm definitely feeling a hell of a lot worse than I was when I was walking to the front door. But uh, yeah, though, I mean, for me, there's certainly there's certainly nothing in that that's really giving us anything useful, um, but but really just a motivational statement. There's a lot of shaming going on in that quote, isn't there? It's basically saying that the reason why you're not the person that you want to be is because you're a lazy bastard who can't get off the sofa, <laughs> um, which is to be very unempathetic, really, from my from my point of view. I, I think it's pointless um i think the only way that could possibly u- be used is actually to show empathy uh which is opposite from what darren said 
because somebody said could say it's really difficult and you could just go it seems like the hardest mile is uh from you know from your door to the couch um and that could be a way of showing empathy and how difficult it is but you could obviously deliver that in another way which is the hardest mile is that you know it's up to you your cr- crap you know harden up and, and get the job done here um so it's it's how the message is put across i think that's the only way um that i could use that and mm. you know that's me using my mi skills to to turn that into something useful but i've got another one for you guys and i haven't let you in on this one and this one's going to knock you out of the park <laughs> um, okay so all hands on deck are you ready i thought that was the quote this one actually <laughs> we're not on a ship and you're not a pirate the next one is attention and intention are the mechanics of manifestation can i start by saying i have no idea what that means me neither no (laughs) i i've got no no idea what that that means at all okay i'm going to repeat it again for our listeners attention and intention are the mechanics of manifestation. I mean, what the hell is that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm still drawing a blank. I mean, I understand the words. I know what all of the words mean individually. Um, yeah, I'm I'm drawing a blank. This is like when I mark a, like a first-year essay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're just kind of like throwing words out to try and make it sound kind of like, you know, intelligent sounded not actually saying anything okay so there's no value in this at all is there then matt i mean i've i've really got no idea what this is saying genuinely like this is this is utter nonsense well yeah. we're quite intelligent people right probably got about <laughs> 10 degrees between us here I and mean, if we can't figure out what on earth this is trying to say i i guess there's, again what what's the psychological underlying psychological message to that to that statement but I just got no idea what what this is. Yeah, I mean, I've never even heard that one before. Have you just made that up? Darren, what are your thoughts? You've got a twinkle in your eye. I've cracked it. I've cracked it. Okay, so what outside of attention and inattention, what exists outside of attention and inattention? Nothing. We're either, something is either within our attention or uh, we are in attention, okay? So basically, everything, right? So what it's basically saying is everything is a manifestation. Nothing is true. Um all of reality is a social construct. Um, uh, I still don't know what the meaning that is, but yeah, that's my that's my analysis of it. Okay, so this one's going to blow your socks away. I got this out of a paper by Penny Cook, twenty fifteen, and the paper is called "The Reception and Detection of Pseudo Profound Bullshit," and it basically talks about how people, <laughs> how good people are at spotting bullshit. So you guys have all spotted bullshit, but where did this quote come from? It came from none other than Deepak Chopra, who's a baloney merchant. Okay. They they used his his book and his baloney to set up statements which are pseudo pseudo profound bullshit <laughs> as part of the test. So I recommend any aspiring sports sites go and read that. Amazing. Also, what's kind of interesting about this is. He's he's one of these new age mumbo jumbo merchants, and uh, he has actually been interviewed on another sports sites podcast, 
Um, and that sports psych is unable to tell the difference between, uh, you know, pseudo profound bullshit and common sense. So without throwing any further digs in there, people, because again, we don't want to get libelious, libelious, liabilities. I don't know. We don't want the lawyers after us, Pete, because we don't have any money yet. <laughs> um, so I'm going to throw you one more of these. Okay. And I'm going to say this in a in big, uh, we're in the changing rooms, motivational voice. And this is, this is going to, this is going to land. This is definitely going to work. Mm-hmm. So every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle. When a sun comes up, you better be running. I mean, that's just some racist shit right there straight away. Why are we talk, talking about Africa and the first thing you talk about is lions and gazelles? I mean, come on, man. We can do better than that. So that's my first comment. <laughs> that's my first comment. <laughs> anyone anyone okay, else okay. want to take it? <laughs> Go on, Darren. I would love to hook up your athlete to like uh, a cardiovascular monitor to see whether they're in a challenge or threat state after after that <laughs> that speech. <laughs> I'm thinking they're going to be like all the way to threat state town. Just think oh, I'm going to get eaten. What? I didn't sign up for this. I just want to play for football. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a little personality test in there, Darren. If, if for you, you can sort of categorise people into lions and gazelles based upon their challenge and threat response. This is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's got anything or any value to it. Um, underlying psychological message: be a lion, don't be a gazelle. Um, but then, you know, gazelles are quite good at stuff. So we are here with Dr. Darren Britton and Matt Cunliffe, and we have been talking about neuromyths and pseudoscience. And he's just thrown a bunch of motivational quotes at us, um, which have, well, I don't know. I think we've decided that they have very little value whatsoever. The hardest mile is the mile from your couch to your front door. Um, you know, there's there's lots of these floating around. If you believe you will achieve, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And I think at this particular time uh, in history, without wanting to sound dramatic about it, there's a lot of this stuff about, you know, one of the persistent myths about psychology is that it's just nothing more than positive mental attitude, you know, never give up, all that crap, right? And it's not helped by just the astounding amount of motivational posters and pop psych coffee table books and Twitter experts, you know, particularly relevant since the pandemic, um, because a lot of people are feeling pressure to have written their third novel by now. You know, if you know what day it is, you aren't busy enough, stuff like that. So some of these aren't particularly useful. And I think, you you know, our guests have both alluded to the fact that they're potentially quite damaging as well in some some instances, um, you know, putting pressure on people to to kind of overwork themselves to the point where we're reaching burnout. I think we have to look at the purpose behind some of these things, right? They're designed to motivate, aren't they? They're designed to inspire. So even if some of them are a little trite, which they are, and even if some of them don't particularly make much sense, which we've established, if they're getting people up 
and keeping people going to the gym and inspiring people to train hard and strive to be their best. What's the problem? Matt, what do you, well, let's go to you first on that. I have a, 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 an interesting issue with this because the whole positive mental attitude phenomena, it, for me, is, is there's something wrong with it. And, and I think there's some research out there really that, that talks about uh, motivational posters and stuff like that, that, you know, when, when, we, when we walk past a training venue, we actually don't, don't pay attention to posters at all or we don't pay attention to motivational quotes very often. I mean, there's a video out there that, um, I mean, probably lots of people have watched, you know, there's lots of people dancing and then there's a dancing bear that goes across it and almost nobody, nobody recognises the dancing bear. People are not that perceptive and people don't see these things quite often unless they're actively looking for them. Um, so one of the things I don't do is use like posters in uh, performance environments because I don't think they have much of a, of a benefit unless you are actively pointing them out on a regular basis. I mean, I mean, posters was just an example, you know, but if you, if you scroll through your Twitter feed or your Instagram, you know, it's full of, I, I don't know what, I'm old, so I don't know what the correct term is, but are they like influencers, you know, posting these, these kind of messages and beautiful sunset with a ridiculous quote on there. That, that's kind of more thing, the thing I'm talking about, you know, if it's inspiring people to move more and do more and strive to be, you know, more like, is there, is there a real problem there is what I'm, what I'm getting at. I mean, I don't really have a problem with the Instagram posts and the Instagram quotes and stuff like that. I think they are small bite-sized chunks of, of stuff. Um, now, I've got to say that I'm quite guilty of this. And my Instagram now is currently full of stuff like that. It's full of techniques. It's full of quotes. It's full of ideas for people to use um, in performance-related settings. So everything that I put up is underpinned by either a cognitive behavioral theory or or by some kind of theory that is that is useful. So I don't really have an issue with them. Um, I guess if, if it means that people are, you know, seeing that and then coming to speak to me rather than coming to speak to an influencer that perhaps doesn't have the training or skills to deal with the problem, then that's a really great thing. I don't think any one of us here would say that positivity, optimism is a bad thing, right? We know that positive emotion and optimism are associated with a number of positive mental health outcomes and things like this but i think what we're really talking about is at what point does positivity become toxic at what point do we potentially become overly optimistic and what might the negative consequences of that be at what point does engaging in all this material take us from a point of making us help making us helping us to feel more positive and helping us feel more motivated to the point where it's setting us unrealistic expectations about what we should be doing on a daily basis and what how we should be feeling on a daily basis, particularly given that we are currently during a global pandemic, which no one of this generation has ever experienced before. I think the, the, the question is that line, when does positivity become toxic positivity? You know, I often hear people thought, say to me, I don't want negative energy. I just want positive energy and, and phrases like this. And these are athletes that I work with. And I think the issue is that that judges a thing as an absolute and when we judge something as an absolute, that sets it up for failure because that's like saying, I always need positivity. Look, if you lose a family member to COVID, there's no positivity there and it's perfectly acceptable to grieve. And if you get injured and you're sad about your, your loss of performance or the fact that you have to go through a rehab, you know, 
it's healthy to be a bit distraught about that. It's when does that uh, distress or what people would term negativity uh, become too much. So I think the thing is that we need positive and negative and we need to remove those words and change them with helpful and unhelpful. So helpful optimism versus unhelpful optimism. Uh, And that's a conversation that I think people need to have themselves. Um, But Matt, you know, I'm sure you have an idea on this. I, I was never one to really focus on emotions. More recently, I've been really interested in how emotions manifest and what the purpose and use of emotions are. Now, emotions serve three purposes. So they help us to know when something's wrong. They help us to know when we want to change something or something around us needs to be changed. And they also help us to communicate with other human beings. So emotions are actually pretty useful things. I think for the things like bad, fearful, angry, disgusted and sad, we've kind of ostracised those emotions. Um, And actually, they're not a bad thing. Emotions are not bad. They're not good. And by, by moving away from this idea of positive and negative emotions, I think we can get to a point where actually people can start to accept that emotions are emotions and emotions are there to serve a purpose. Emotion An emotion is a fleeting thing, right? It, it comes and it goes as with the change of a situation, with the change of the wind. They don't last very long. So I think we need to just be clear that actually emotions are good for us. Emotions are part of being a human and we can't get rid of them. And um, actually, there's no such thing as a good or a bad emotion I think he was right in saying that there's a there's a helpful and unhelpful emotions. In some situations, it is helpful to be disgusted. Okay, specifically when you know you've got some rancid food in front of you, means you're not going to eat it. You know, in some situations, it's helpful to be fearful. But in other situations, more specifically, performance situations, being fearful or being angry doesn't actually help you. So what we try to do is to try to minimise the the effect of those emotions because they are unhelpful in the situation that somebody is in. Yeah, I think it's a, an excellent point. And it's, again, a sort of, you know, a fairly westernised, if I can use that word, view of of this. We've, we've pathologised, you know, emotions that actually aren't, in any way negative you know we've pathologized things like anxiety and sadness and are constantly telling people that they shouldn't be sad they shouldn't be anxious they should be like you say relentlessly happy when actually emotions are just emotions and like Hugh said and, and like you've said they're neither good nor bad they're neither positive nor, nor negative they're just a a series of physical sensations and you know accompanied with with a series of thoughts that's all they are and we kind of need to look at them like that but i mean i guess um getting back to 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 what we're talking about we're sort of with some of these you know you have to be relentlessly positive you have to have written your third novel you have to have learned six languages uh you know as darren mentioned during a, a global fucking pandemic which nobody's experienced before there is that element of shame if you are not doing all of those things and that's what i think there's maybe that negative uh um aspect to this a damaging aspect to the proliferation of these kind of motivational shit quotes you know i've i've heard i've heard athletes and coaches talk about how they heard this like fantastic speech and they had this guy in and he was fantastic and it was wonderful and it turns out that he was basically a motivational speaker uh, with no psychology background whatsoever so yeah yes i think there's a problem there with some of this 
you know, like I say, relentlessly positive motivational nonsense. Um, but how do we, how do we separate all of this stuff out, you know, to the untrained ear, how do we make sure that our bullshit detectors are in full working order with some of this stuff? Um, it's all very well and good complaining about it, but you know, what, what do we do? How do we, how do we get around this problem? For me, I think part of the answer is empathy. So I think it's, it's very quick to kind of like stand back and sneer at people who get bought in by, by all this stuff. Um, but what we really need to be asking is why are they buying into it in the first place? So why is someone consuming all this kind of toxic positivity content and motivational, motivational YouTube video content? Is it because they are uh, struggling to deal with um, a difficult situation, difficult emotions? Because there's a reason why they're engaging in this content in the first place. Mm. Um, the answer after that then is then engaging with these people and saying, okay, what is it you're trying to achieve by consuming this content? Okay, here are some short-term consequences which you're finding quite helpful, but what are the long-term consequences? Um, it's like, you know, in all the coping research um, in sport, um, it's really good to delineate between kind of like short-term consequences of coping strategies and long-term consequences of coping strategies. Firstly, empathy and just having that a conversation with people around, okay, these are the short-term effects of this, but what are the long-term effects of this? Is this actually working out for you in the long-term? I think Darren's hit the nail on the head there a little bit with the whole idea of the long-term and short-term consequences. Um, people typically love this idea of having short-term, quick wins. But what we do know is that obviously long-term change doesn't occur in the short-term intervention. So, you know, I think sports psychologists quite often will go in to do a workshop about what is sports psychology that a lot of people have heard a hundred times before. I worked with a nutritionist once who... Um, delivered the workshop to a, a workshop to a group of international players who'd had about 13 different nutritionists um, and she went in and did the exact same presentation that that every single other nutritionist had done for the past 15 years 15 times and the boys were, were like well we've we, we've heard this presentation so many times before we've got nothing out of it so what we need to be doing is going, well, what are our immediate wins? We need to get away from this initial, what is sports psychology, and start making a big impact on the first interaction. And that first interaction might be on Instagram, it might be on Twitter, it might be on social media, it might be on YouTube, but it might be on a phone call, or it might be in a workshop. We need to make sure that as sports psychologists, we are offering those quick wins, but then we are also saying, this quick win is going to offer you some kind of short-term solution, an evidence-based, effective short-term solution, but it's a short-term solution. Um, and then we need to go in with our long-term long -term win. Yeah, I, I think the holy grail is being able to offer something to an athlete that helps them in the short term, but will also help them in the long term as well. Because what the strategies we're talking about here are things that do help people in the short term, but don't help them in the long term. Yes, we want to have impact with the athletes we work with, because a lot of the time, you know, when we're working in sport, um, we are under pressure to deliver the goods within short periods of time. So we do want to be able to help athletes in the short term, but it's also also thinking about, is this short-term solution also something that works in the long term as well? Hugh, you've been sort of sat there listening to, to Darren and Matt talking about this stuff, about, you know, taking the the time to, I guess, understand the athlete's needs, but also the importance of giving them something tangible, something to take away from a session almost straight away but making sure that that something is 
evidence-based and you know solidly scientific rather than just some kind of trite motivational quote what do you make of all of this you you know i think there's two problems on the table here one is what is legitimate psychology look like whenever it's been done and the other one is what's the reputation of the practitioner in the eyes of the the client um both are important because if you've got that relationship and that person believes in what you're selling you can you know get some fast progress and fast change but i think there's some really interesting things that the guys have brought to the table here what's the long-term and short-term consequences of your approach you know if you give them a solution and they put that in place does that teach them to find solutions or does it just teach them the solution to that problem but then to go back on to the idea of like what is the difference of of between you know these motivational quotes and actual psychology there's three statements that i've taken from an economist and the th- three questions are um where's the evidence that this will you know work what's the cost of it and then what what is this better than and those three questions are great from an evaluative point because what they allow you to do is say when you know somebody rocks up with a don't be a gazelle be a lion and doesn't matter anyway start running i'm going to go well okay what's the evidence that this saying is actually going to help me very little what does it cost me well it cost me five seconds to listen to that hot air come out of that idiot's head and then <laughs> uh what what else is better than this probably some from decent support from a, an accredited person um you know who's going to provide with me an evidence base if they're challenged I think the other thing is it's it's really important to remember that when you do psychology with somebody, even if you're really good, you can still have really negative effects. And I think of one person who I helped out, I sat down and taught him how to do goal setting. And he, the very next day, went and redid the entire process, dropped out of his degree three months before finishing and moved to Australia. And this was a, you know, it was a pretty big shock for me um, that he'd gone and taken this newly found skill applied it without me and completely changed the course of his life. So I think there's contraindications to everything. And if you can't identify what they are, then the person isn't an expert and the person shouldn't be helping you. I guess I'd like to ask Darren and uh, Matt, you know, when you're, and, and you as well, Hugh, actually, but when you're interacting with other professionals, other psychs, coaches, and you come across this sort of thing, you know, Matt, you've already mentioned that it's perhaps your responsibility or, or, or psychologist's responsibility to package what they're doing more effectively. Um, but when you come across other people, you know, let's say you are working with, working in sport and you're working with a coach who really truly believes in learning styles, right? you know, as a practitioner that there's nothing behind it, like, how do you have that conversation? How do you approach that um, as a, as a psychologist? I think for me, I'm, I'm a bit more cautious now to, to go in and challenge people directly. I've done it before. I did it with one of my first coaches. Thankfully, he's a really good um, client and friend of mine now, but I've done it before and I've come into hot water where I've gone in and challenged people on their thoughts um, around these kinds of strongly held beliefs around pseudoscience and not come off well from it. So I'm very much in the camp of not really challenging this early on. And I think if I've got a rela- good relationship with a client or a good relationship with a coach or that person, 
I'm much more likely to to have that challenge. But I'm often import. I'm often much more likely to let it go for the time being, um, and then start to talk about alternative opportunities or alternative options to what they're speaking about. People don't like being told that they're wrong. So, I and I I'm acutely aware of that, and especially as a psychologist, where I'm perhaps in a system, and I, I you know I want to want to be keeping and fostering those relationships, giving what I would class as negative strokes, as in negative comments or reactions to, to specific coaches is not going to be it's not going to build a relationship um, I've certainly been on the wrong end of or on the wrong end of calling people out online and you know it doesn't go well something Hugh said to me in the past is leave the world in a better place if you're going to going to challenge somebody so you know I've kind of taken that on board and really thinking about like if I'm going to work with somebody or challenge somebody it's got to be in a positive manner so I'm not not typically going to do that but having said that I think there's a point here where coach as a as a psychologist we should be more willing to give our opinions over and we should be more willing to share our knowledge uh, of what what it is that we're trying to do. I I would take a slightly different approach. I mean, when I sit down with like an athlete or a coach, I very much take the position that I am not an expert. Like, I actively almost think to myself, I have absolutely no idea what this person is thinking what it's like to be them, what uh, their performance environment is like whatsoever. Um, because I'm more interested in what it is that already works for them, what the, their strengths are, what resources they already have and how they can use them more. So if I've got a coach who's like really keen to bring NLP into the organization, right? <laughs> oh, I've done this course and we're, we're going to bring it in. We're going to bring it into the training program. I would ask them, and what difference do you hope that would make? Let's say you bought this NLP in and it was successful. Well, what what difference would that make? Oh, I guess yeah, the athletes would perform better under pressure, and uh, we'd have you know, you know maybe better well being across the across the team and all this. Okay, right, okay, so perform better under pressure and have high levels of well being. Uh, in what way are you already achieving that? What things are you already doing that are helping that? And then from that, the coach can suddenly realize, oh, actually, I don't need to actually do anything different. I'm actually you know, we are already doing things which are helping in this area. There are strengths and resources we can already draw upon. I don't need this this golden nugget to come in and change the way we're doing things. Um, so that's kind of the way I would approach it, just to get them to think about, okay, you think this thing is going to come in and revolutionize the way you do things. Well, actually, in what way you're already doing the things that you hope it would achieve. Yeah, but Darren, I can't, I can't agree with you because you're, you are an expert in what you do. You know, you've got a PhD. You're probably more educated than, well, I don't know, what ninety nine point eight percent of the population. You are an expert in sports psychology, so you can't ignore that you're an expert. You've just got to, and I get what you're saying about you're going and you're not an expert in them, but you're certainly an expert in sports psychology. So you should be confident in giving over at least at some of your opinions and some of your ideas. You know, okay, I'm not saying that we're going to go in and force ideas on people. I'm saying that we're going to empathetically do it and do it by asking questions. Matt, but you I are an, an expert, expert in what you do, Darren. I so, know I'm an expert. I just adopt that position because I think it best helps my conversations with athletes. Yeah, but, you, but by adopting the – athletes are expecting you to, to offer them something because they see that you are an expert. And I think as sports psychologists, we're, we're often a bit too hesitant to give over our – our knowledge and offer our knowledge to people. We we want to. Let me clarify. I like to think we're, I'm an we're, draw, we're drawing. 
we're drawing out ideas. I like to think, for, you know, we're, we're taking this approach of drawing ideas out of people. But I like to think I'm an expert actually, I think questions. We are. We need to be be better at you know asking permission to give ideas, asking permission know, to give. I know, but in that environment, sitting one to one with someone, I just consider myself an expert in asking questions that hopefully people find useful. Like, I think I'm not. I'm not saying don't ask questions, but I am certainly certainly saying we should be much more um, open to the idea that we need to bring something that our coaches don't know. Okay, we need to bring something that our coaches can't do. Because we need to be seen as being valuable. Um, and if we don't bring those things, if we don't bring the stuff that the coaches can't do, then we're not going to be seen as valuable. And we just need to, you know, we'll end up being being seen as a, an, an unused or an unnecessary resource. So we kind of just need to be a bit, a bit more forthcoming. I'm not saying don't ask questions. I'm not saying don't use empathy. But certainly be, I think we need to be a bit more open and a bit more um, accepting of the fact that we're, we've got a lot of knowledge and we, we, we should be sharing that knowledge, uh, but we should share and be sharing that knowledge with permission. I'm sitting listening to this with, with, with interest and I know Hugh is as well. Hugh, have you got anything to say here? Do you know, this is a great discussion. Uh, popcorn here is, is tasty. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm actually, I'm relieved to hear there's differences on the podcast. You know, that, that tells us we're mm. doing something healthy whenever we've got differences of opinion. And I think, you know, it's very true that maybe both scenarios could be right, depending on the context. And I'm thinking about, you know, I've definitely, similar to Matt, gone in and challenged people on on their bullshit, um, and it hasn't gone down well. And, you know, Pete, I, I know you're a flat earther um, because <laughs> you, you, your experience uh, of the world is in a basketball court. So how would you know the world's round? Like you, if, if you've only lived in a basketball court, you, of course you're going to believe that the earth is flat. And I, I think know, that has some... some of the basketball courts in Gateshead. <laughs> so I, I think that has some relevance in that the perspective of the individual uh, is the extent of their world. And if they've only been in a flat basketball court or a bumpy one in Gateshead, they're going to think that our whole earth is flat or just slightly bumpy as opposed to round. And I think also there's the idea that when we challenge things, there's like psychological reactance uh, is a big feature. And I think that's what Darn's hitting on, which is when you do challenge people, they push back. Um, and I can think of like, you know, if you want to go and sit and have an argument with somebody that bats are causing, there's 5G COVID bats or something and start arguing back and forth with somebody, about conspiracy theories, that's not going to work. So I think asking questions is actually quite a useful thing. So it depends on what's your relationship. You know, is it a good relationship or is it an early relationship? Because Matt's approach might be better when it's good and Darren's approach might be better when it's early. And I think that's what I'm hearing here. Um, and I, yeah, so I don't know, Pete, what are your thoughts? And, and also, like, we do need to talk about your flat earth beliefs. Yeah. Um, if you haven't watched Beyond the Curve, which is a Netflix documentary about flat earthers, you owe it to yourself to, to watch that documentary. It's one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen. Um, and it's if you want to know how to not do science, that's uh, also a fantastic documentary. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think what we've just heard is really beneficial for 
our our listeners here because what they've heard is two slightly differing approaches um and i think it's it like you said here it's healthy to hear that it's healthy to hear that there's no one right or wrong way to do this um and there are different positions that you can adopt when uh speaking to coaches or athletes or other psychologists and there's no sort of like i said there's no right or wrong way of doing it so i think it's really healthy for our, our listeners to hear that um because we I thought we were going to have our first 80% mental fight then. I thought, it was, I thought that's where that was heading. If you've been a regular listener to the 80% Mental Podcast, you will have heard motivational interviewing being mentioned by some of our guests and myself. Motivational interviewing, or MI for short, is a counselling approach that allows you to have a conversation with someone who's finding behaviour change difficult. MI has been the most impactful training I've done as an applied psych. I've never been in a conversation where I didn't know what to say to someone to improve the situation. In fact, if you're trained in MI, you'll have noticed that I actually use some aspects of MI in the podcast to make interviews go well. I even train up the coaches and other members of the multidisciplinary performance teams I work with, like physios, nutritionists, docs, etc. Because getting trained in MI has the effect of making everyone have razor-sharp communication skills, becoming more effective in the performance environment. If you want to get trained up in MI and get an 80% mental listener exclusive offer, send an email to podiumpsychology at gmail.com and put in the subject heading motivational interviewing 80% mental or check out podiumpsychology.com. Now, back to the podcast. So we are here with Dr. Darren Britton and Matt Cunliffe, uh, two experts in sports psychology, and we've been talking about critical thinking. Uh, we've been dissecting a few of the motivational quotes that we see out there on that internet that they have these days. Uh, and we've been talking about how to maybe separate out some of the good quality evidence-based stuff from some of the uh, nonsense. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this, actually. If you have a favorite best worst motivational quote uh tweet us at epm podcast uh, on twitter obviously on twitter because that's you wouldn't be tweeting us anywhere else um or leave a comment on the website which is 80 mental.com the brand new website um which is full of really good stuff isn't it you yes it is and you still need to change my job title pete i might right i've got a question pete so uh <laughs> Rather difficult question for me is I'm a very skeptical person um, and I, I probably I'm known for being very critical um, and to the point where when I first learned about motivational interviewing and I first learned about RABT, I basically hammered the two people with horrible, horrible questions and went away off thinking those two therapies are absolute nonsense, which is ironic considering now I'm... I'm <laughs> I, I didn't trained up in them so that's my default mode but i imagine there's other people out there who are very skeptical and and one of the things that i've used is like carl sagan's um the baloney detection kit uh, i recommend you read that if you're interested just google carl sagan bullshit detector baloney detector and you'll get some real good guidance on it but what do you guys do if if you're trying to sell sports psychology to a coach or an athlete who's very skeptical or just like, oh, you're just another head mumbo jumbo person? Um, how do you cope with these kind of pushbacks uh, in that scenario? Again, I guess it's just asking questions. Okay, um, clearly to have that opinion, they have some kind of experience with either sports psychology or something masquerading as sports psychology prior to that 
Okay. So I would ask them about what it is that forms that opinion because maybe, maybe their opinion is formed by an experience of somebody who wasn't actually um, a real sports psychologist. Um, you know, talk about sort of like, you know, pre 2000s when kind of anyone can call themselves a sports psychologist. It's going to be a lot of coaches out there of a certain age whose experience of sports psychology in the past is probably not particularly great. Um, and then just explaining your approach and how it's different. I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Matt? Do you know what? It's been a really long time since somebody's ever said that to me. Um, I remember one of my first ever responses from a coach was, I don't want to tie you with the shitty brush of everyone else. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I, I've experienced a lot of support psychologists that actually have, have done nothing. So um, I mean, that hit took my confidence. Um, but I used to have the approach where you haven't tried sports psychology with me, which is a fair point. Um, I, but I don't don't really go into that anymore. What I try to do is to just be really, really clear on what it is I offer and what it is I do. So I'm really clear upon what it is that I work on. I, I, I never really say that I improve performance. What I do is I usually say something along the lines of, you know, I'm here to improve your mindset. I'm here to improve your mindset your coping abilities your coping strategies or your high performance mindset um i don't really go in for anything beyond that because i don't think there's any evidence to suggest that we actually improve performance what i can guarantee is that they're going to be able to control some of their mindset better if they do the things that we ask if they do the things that we work on then we they will improve they will get better and i think we can have that we can have that guarantee that we can improve mindset we can't have that guarantee that we can improve performance yeah it's really about stripping everything back to how can i actually help people you strip away the jargon around different approaches like humanistic and cognitive behavioral and certainly also strip away any reference to the word performance or well-being really get down to the nuts and bolts of how do i actually help people i can help people develop strategies that will help them cope with adversity yeah fair enough and, and Different psychologists will have different answers. There is no gold standard um, package description of what it is that a sports like can help. Hopefully something that the conversation between me and Matt has demonstrated that no sports like is the same. But ultimately, it's about stripping it down to how can we best help people? Pete, what are your thoughts there? I think both of the guys are absolutely right in, 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 the, you know, in what they've said there about stripping everything back. I would probably be more inclined to take Darren's approach of you know there's probably some previous experience there that hasn't been great let's dig into that a little bit and, and kind of try and understand that and then perhaps see if if I can offer something that's different to that you know well here's why what I do is maybe not the experience that you've had previously uh, here's why it's different but again not doing that over promising um about improving performance and winning medals and you're going to be the next best thing and you're going to be amazing and wonderful. I think right now, like my approach is much more here and now focused. It's what does this person need right this moment in time? Do they need me to dig into their past and their past experiences with sports psychology or do they just need me to show them that actually sports psychology can be re done really well and can be done really specifically? And if I can do that, then that's, that's going to sort of change the perception. So bringing this, bringing this back to performance, right? And bringing this back to, I guess, the, the context of this episode, which is toxic positivity and, you know, how to think straight about psychology. If I'm in competition, right? If I'm 
or, or training and I'm about to go and I don't know, let's say, Hugh, you work in weightlifting, right? So let's say I'm about to go and lift and so somebody says, or I say to myself, if I just believe I will achieve, that's not massively helpful. And we can sit here and we can pick holes in that and we can explain why it's not massively helpful, but it would be remiss of us not to say, okay, what should we be doing instead of that? How can we replace some of these trite motivational nonsense comments with stuff that is actually going to be useful? And I think, like I say, it would be remiss of us not to spend a few minutes just talking about that. Yeah, trying to recite a motivational particularly a long-winded motivational mantra <laughs> right before a highly stressful sporting performance is not going to be very effective. Do you imagine like you know, the captain of a rugby team pulling all the players in with 20 minutes to go, six points down, go, right, lads, um, there's a cheater. And he's been, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't a cheater. What was it? There's a tiger. No, no, tigers are from India. A lion, right. And he's, and he's trying to get his breakfast. And um, there's, there's a there's a gazelle. Or was it an antelope? He he doesn't want to get eaten. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just not realistic at all. It's really um, what we need to be doing is working with the limited uh, attention and cognitive capacity players are going to have um, when under pressure. So mm-hmm. whether you, whether you want to have focus on motivation or focus on instruction, really boiling down to like you know keywords, keywords far more useful and effective than big, long motivational mantras. So for a rugby player, for example, or a rugby team, it could be three keywords around you know, intensity, aggression, things like that, rather than big, long motivational speeches. So short, sharp phrases that are going to focus somebody's attention on either task or effort yeah. uh, in that particular moment. Mm. Yeah. Matt, what about you? What, what, what do you think in terms of what, what should we be doing? What should we be saying to ourselves or to other people to, to replace some of these, these kind of things that we know don't really mean anything? For me, it's about, especially pre-competition, it's about focusing on strengths. If we're thinking about strengths prior to competition, that's going to give us a lot more uh, success, right? So typically we feel more powerful and we feel more passionate we feel more enthusiastic and motivated when we're focusing on our strengths than if we're focusing on our weaknesses. So for me, I think focusing on um, on those those character strengths or those skill based strengths, that's the most important thing. And, and we can pick strengths from sort of different levels. So for me, pick a strength and focus on it before the competition. Is there like a, a magic number of like either strengths or values or characteristics that you would have like? a player bring to mind you know is there like a magic number of you know you know how how many is too many and how few is too few yeah so Darren I, I mean that's a really great question Darren and and you're the positive psychologist here so you'll probably know this a bit better than I do but for me you know there's three levels of strengths that I'm thinking about so we've got our skills based strengths that's kind of like the lowest level then we get the uh the sort of thinking and, and emotion based strengths and then finally we get the character strengths and value and personality based strengths so we've got those three levels and for me I kind of want an athlete to be picking one from each um, but yeah, certainly no more than 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 one or two or three. I'd rather I'd rather it be short, sharp, and succinct rather than having long, convoluted um, conversations about what your strengths are. I think it should be one, one or two that are really, really punchy. Yeah, I like the idea of, sort of covering the bases with the different types of strengths. It's, I guess the, the worry is always maybe 
overloading the athlete with trying to recall too many instructions or keywords. Capacity of working memory is, you know, seven plus or minus two. So bare minimum, well, the ma- that maximum therefore would be five, I would say, but it's up to the athlete how, how much can they recall when under pressure. You referred some interesting insights there from from Darren and Matt. What do you make of this? Again, you you know you work in sport, you work in weightlifting, where some of these focus cues might be really important. What what are your thoughts? You know, I, th- I think it's interesting because I think what the guys have talked about can form something workable. It's like the gr- the foundation of you know putting together a plan. But for me, like using the specific example of you going out to lift. I would be tend to draw on like the pre-performance uh, routine literature, um, and it it's quite simple. It's like uh, you might you have an image in your head that you might use. You're going to have a physical routine, a behavioral thing that you do. You might have one cue word, and you'll have that routine, and it'll be there for six months in advance, and you'll go to that before you perform. Now that's only in a in a closed skill sport. In a team sport, slightly different because there's more to focus on and more to more to more thinking time in 60 minutes of a match, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. again, it's a different scenario, and I think in that scenario, that's when having those values and strengths might be actually something where you sit and go like, "I'm having this thought, or I'm having this reaction to the last phase of play. How do I refocus on what's important?" And I also ask like, "What would the coach want the?" player to do because if you're working with the player you should be maybe considering like what does the coach think they should be focusing on because we as psychs are going to have a psyche message and the nutritionist will have a nutritionist message and the Mm. physio will have a physio message you know and the coach will have a coach message and then you can have an athlete with you know 10 different messages and you know a book a book of stuff to do when Mm. really they need to do what they do it should be automatic i think it's like how can you like when the guys talk about values and stuff, I think that that's basically bringing it back down to look simple stuff here. You know, whatever that value is, whatever that meaningful thing is, it it it's going to downregulate you enough or upregulate you enough uh, that you can actually just do what you do. But I think you know, I want to confess here, Pete. Um, I have done some pretty cringy stuff as a coach, um, <laughs> um, and. I'm sure as a psych, you know, starting out, I've done some pretty bad stuff too um, when I was learning the ropes. But like as a coach, I played the speech from any given Sunday at a training session to try and up the intensity. <laughs> it just didn't work. The guys started laughing and it was it was like gutted. So like I think <laughs> when when you've got coaches like me who've done stupid stuff like that, they've done it for good intent and good reason. So I mm. think the big common factor of all of this is that when we act and we see other people acting in a bad way, they're probably acting with good intent and tapping into that is probably a real benefit where you can align with them. What are your thoughts, Pete? You know, you sat there with a, a wealth of experience and I'm sure you've done some cringy stuff uh, as a basketball coach. Well, well, first of all, you know, I noticed that Matt was laughing at the any given Sunday uh, video because I don't know if it was still part of the MSC when he did it, but it certainly was when I did it. We got shown that video <laughs> yeah, as an example, uh, I think, in one of the motivation classes. So, um, yeah, I can't really comment on the use of that as being something cringy. But, I, I mean, for me, you know, obviously we've all done cringy stuff as, as coaches and, uh, and, and, uh, and as psychs as well. But I think for me it breaks down into – and you mentioned this, you you know, what's important now? 
like right now. And that comes from an awareness of what's happening and acceptance of any thoughts or any unhelpful emotions or emotions that might be unhelpful at that particular time uh, and physical sensations. And rather than spending time trying to get rid of them by focusing on something else, we just need to kind of accept that they are there and think about what's important like right at this particular second, like right now. Is it about getting my feet in the right place? Is it about hustling back on defense, you know, if I'm playing basketball? Is it something technical? What's important right at this particular second? And that's what my focus is. Again, I think it's different for those fast-paced sports versus those close skills. But in some ways, I think it's actually not that different. Um, two people, you've both got your hands. You both want to come in on that. Well, Pete, you know, you talked about what's important now. And if you take the first three letters out of what's important now, what are you left with? Oh, no. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Win. <laughs> W-I-N. So I know. Like, I, I, but but for, for me though, but like I think that's cringy. Like I think that's yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? So if I go in and say like, like I'm perfectly happy talking about the idea of you need to focus on what's important now. Like right, you know. And if 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 people want to put two and two together and think, oh, that 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 stands for win, that's fine. But I'm not going to say that because that's just really cringy. Go on. Yeah, but the <laughs> thing is, that's really it's really cringy. But I first picked that up off an American football coach called Lou Holtz. Um, now, I think he also punched an opposing player in the throat at one point, <laughs> but that was what he used to, used to say is like, you have to do, if you want to win, you have to do what's important now. And that's yeah, a sticky yeah. message that people can swallow down and, and get them to focus. Course, and it's yeah. aligned with your act philosophy. So you can take that and, and be cringy all you want, Pete. Darren, <laughs> what are you going to say here? We're going way off track. Yeah, I think what Pete's getting at is the idea of refocusing athletes on what it is actually trying to do. So you've got you've got an athlete or a team saying, okay, we want to watch Al Pacino's speech from any given Sunday before the game because we think it's going to lift our motivation levels and arouse levels. Okay, and if it did that, what would you then be doing differently? Well, I'd be you know getting off the line more and I'd be communicating more and all this kind of stuff. And then you start getting the athlete into actually what they're actually trying to achieve, what they're actually trying to do. And then realizing that, mm-hmm. oh, I don't actually need, I don't need to watch Al Pacino doing a speech. Uh, it's like Al Pacino is on the podcast. Um, yeah, I don't need to watch. <laughs> Sorry, this is this is just excellent. I thought we did really this good. Is going in, in. This is going almost two hours in, and me not doing an impression, so we've done pretty well. Um, <laughs> again, stripping that away, just so you know then, that Al Pacino impression is going in the trailer. <laughs> um. In, fa- in fact, can, can you do Al Pacino telling people that they should be listening to the 80% Mental Podcast? Okay. Hi, I'm Al Pacino, and I think you should watch 80% Mental. Oh, it's going to be great. Hugh, I mean, I don't know about you. I... I... Well, I mean, first of all, Matt, have you got anything else to 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 add to the the conversation about that, or any impressions you want to do? I don't, I don't, I I don't think I can add anything <laughs> to that. Like, I, I after that impression, I've, I don't think I've got anything I can add. add that's going to add anything. Yeah, it's all you, all over to you. I, I 
I think it is too. Um, we're coming up to coming up to five o'clock. We anyway, have peaked. So we're, we're, we've peaked. Um, well, I think we've pretty much come to the end of this episode of eighty percent mental, the first episode of series two, uh, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we've talked with our guests, Dr. Darren Britton and Matt Cunliffe, about critical thinking or how to think straight about psychology and how to separate out some of the nonsense from um, some of the more evidence-based practices there. We've talked about toxic positivity and whether there's a cost to buying into some of those uh, motivational quotes that we see when we scroll through Instagram and Twitter. And Hugh talked about three questions that we should be asking ourselves. This idea of, okay, well, what's the evidence behind what I'm seeing? What's the cost of me buying into it? And what else might be better than this? Um, our guests have talked about the idea of needing to simplify messages as sports psychologists, uh, as practitioners, as uh, lecturers as well. You know, how do we simplify the message but maintain the evidence base? You know, can we develop those skills to be able to communicate the, some of this stuff a little bit better? We've talked about coming up against some of these ideas and rather than jumping in, because people don't really like to be told that they're wrong or what that they, they believe in is nonsense, if we encounter people who are buying into what we know doesn't really have an evidence base, we need to be confident in our own knowledge, uh, as Matt said, but we need to learn how to share that knowledge. Ask permission before you jump in and tell somebody that what they think is absolutely nonsense, unless they're a flat earther, in which case go for it. Um, but the flip side, we talked about how to approach situations where someone might be skeptical about sports psychology as well. And I learned some really valuable lessons, both from Matt and Darren uh, in that. And then finally, we just talked about this idea of if we are going to say that this stuff is nonsense, what should we be doing instead? So we talked about the idea of focus cues, placing attention on the task, on our effort or on our strengths, and thinking about what's important now, which as Hugh pointed out in no uncertain terms, uh, the <laughs> first letters of those three words stand for win. So if you haven't figured that out yourself, you, you know now. Um, so all that's left really is to thank our two fantastic guests, Darren Britton, Dr. Darren Britton, to give you your proper title. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you. Cheers, guys. Thank you for having me. And Matt Cunliffe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We can't let you go, though, without uh, talking about your uh, core performance mindset training program. Can you tell us a tiny little bit about that, please? Yeah, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's, it's been a real pleasure. And I guess now is an opportunity for me to just give a real shameless <laughs> plug. So I've developed the core program. Uh, it looks at four key areas of the high performance mindset, controlling thoughts and emotions and behaviors, knowing and reflecting on yourself and your strengths, reacting to problems, challenges and mistakes and engaging with goals, communication in the moment. Um, and these four characteristics make up the high performance mindset. If you want to know more, get yourselves over to www.sportspsychologykent.co.uk or find me on Instagram, which is at the underscore performance underscore psych um, on Instagram. And I will happily tell you all about it. Uh, but yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Um, well, we'll we'll put a link to both of your guys' information in the episode description uh, and to anything else that we, we might want to direct our, our listeners to. Uh, Hugh, do you want the last word? Yeah, I just want to say thanks to Matt and Darren. Uh, you've been a massive help to me over the past, uh, what, four or five years. Uh, I've been using you both uh, for advice and, and guidance. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, you're both very experienced supervisors as well. 
for any of our, our listeners who are trainees and want to hit them up for some supervision. Um, so I think that's a that's a great start for the podcast, Pete. Um, uh, I'm I'm amazed we have an Al Pacino impression to lead it off with. Um, and I'm just curious. Uh, you've got to wrap it up, and uh, I wonder what impression you're going to do. Yeah, I'm I'm going to save that for another day. You're a horticulturist. Um, so yeah, I said you could have the last word. I didn't mean it. To our listeners, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, uh, please do get in touch. Uh, you can do that by tweeting us at EPM Podcast, or you can leave a comment on their website, 80percentmental.com, our brand new lovely website. Um, if you have enjoyed what you've heard and you want to support the podcast, you can do that. Me and Hugh love coffee. Uh, you can support us by buying us a coffee. Uh, and you can do that via the website. Um, but we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts, your comments, your wonderful motivational quotes, and maybe ones that you think are absolute nonsense as well. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed listening to Matt and Darren uh, and myself, not so much you. And we will see you next time. Well, we won't see you because it's a podcast. Mm-hmm.